This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free audiobook, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to break with the Japan theme and recommend The War That Ended Peace, The Road to 1914 by Margaret Macmillan. It is, of course, the 100-year anniversary of the first year of World War I, and to my mind, there's no one out there who does a better job of explaining the origins of the Great War that has shaped everything since it broke out. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your copy. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 74, Taira no Masakado. I've been saving this story for a little while now. It's just about Halloween in the West, and I figured it would be the perfect time for a bit of a ghost story. This story revolves around a member of a buke, or warrior house, in the 900s AD. His name was Taira no Masakado, and he, like most of Japan's rising warrior class, was the distant descendant of an emperor who had removed some of his children from the imperial line in order to head off some succession disputes. We're not actually sure when Masakado was born. The few chronicles that are out there describing his life don't give a date. Nor do we know much about his early life. The first time he pops up in history, he was already somewhere in his teens. What we do know is that his branch of the Taira family was based in the Kanto region, the same part of Japan that now houses the capital of Tokyo, and which would become the home base of our subject for the last two weeks, Tokugawa Ieyasu. The first time Masakado crops up in history is when he arrived at the then capital of Kyoto from his home in the Kanto region to take a role as a minor court functionary. Remember, at this time, Kyoto was the domain of the noble Fujiwara family. The imperial family ruled in name, but in practice the Fujiwara used the twin posts of Sesho, or regent to a child emperor, and Kanpaku, or regent to an adult emperor, to dominate the imperial court and rule the country. When Taira no Masakado arrived, the court of the underage emperor Suzaku was dominated by Fujiwara no Tadahira, the current head of the Fujiwara family. We're not quite sure what Masakado's job at court was, or even when he held it. The only reference we have to it comes from a letter he wrote later in life, describing it as some decades earlier than the 930s AD. The going theory, however, is that he was a member of the Takiguchi Imperial Guards, a unit of buke responsible for protecting a quarter of the Imperial Palace. Only the most skilled warriors qualified for these kind of jobs, and it certainly fits with the later image that we get of Masakado that he would be a talented warrior. However, his tenure at court lasted only a brief time, and in 931 he returned home to the Kanto region. Again, we're not clear on why exactly he went back home, 
but the best guess is that it was to take over as head of the family after the death of his father. This is where the best account we have of his life picks up. It's called the Shomonki, or Record of Masakado, Shomon being another pronunciation of the characters in the name Masakado. As family head, Masakado's chief responsibility seems to have been fighting his neighbors. And yes, I mean actual fighting, as in armies and wars and such. This, even though, in theory, everyone's on the same side and serves the same master, the emperor. So why is everyone fighting each other, then? Well, the two commonly cited reasons were personal honor, to establish one's own supremacy or avenge a slight against your honor, or for fiscal gain, to force some concession or another out of your neighbor. The imperial court was forced to tolerate these kind of fights, both because they kept warrior energy focused on each other and away from the idea of banding together to take down the imperial court, and because the only way they could have enforced peace realistically would be to find other warrior families to do their fighting for them, which wouldn't really be fixing the problem so much as just adding to it. In Masakado's case, we're not really clear why he got involved in these fights, because we're missing the first part of the Shomonki. The text literally starts in the middle of a sentence when Masakado is already at war with two sons of a powerful neighbor, Minamoto no Mamoru. A summary of the first part of the Shomonki is available to us via an abridged version from the Edo period, which did survive to today, but no manuscript of the full Shomonki, including the first part, still exists. Now, this phase of Masakado's life will run from 931 to 939 AD, and I could probably spend at least two or three episodes describing the twisting paths of alliances and counter-alliances which surround it. However, this is one of those moments in history which, to paraphrase the wonderful Mike Duncan, cries out for summary, so instead I'm going to confine this to a few points. First, a few of Masticado's opponents were actually members of his own family. In particular, two of his uncles and several of his cousins fought him at various points, having been pulled in by a tangled web of marriage alliances and local politics, a sort of mini-family spat in the style of World War I, if you will. Second, even in the middle of these wars, the rules could only be bent so far. For example, Tyrano Masakado's uncle, Yoshikane, was a provincial official appointed by the imperial court, but, far from upholding law and order, he too often got involved in these on-again, off-again wars. Masakado defeated him and captured him at one point, but was forced to let him go. Executing a provincial official was a very serious crime, and the imperial court was only willing to look the other way so long as its authority was not directly challenged. Executing one of their appointees would not be met with leniency. Finally, Masakado was a very talented warrior. He won the vast majority of his battles, and by 939, reigned undisputed as the most powerful man in his neighborhood. 939 also marked the beginning of the final phase of Masakado's life. Now the master of his own domain, it appears he began meddling with his neighbors as well. Earlier that year, he inserted himself as a mediator between a neighboring provincial governor and a local warrior. Said governor was apparently engaging in corruption and graft, and was being challenged for this corruption by local bouquet families. Masakado stepped in and offered to help the two sides talk things over, but the provincial governor got spooked and became convinced that Masakado planned to work with his enemies to kill him. 
The provincial governor wrote back to the central government in Kyoto and Fujiwara no Tadahira, the man running the country, laying out his suspicions. Tyrano Masakado was forced to write his own letter back to the central government. This is how we know he spent time in Kyoto, because he refers in this letter to his time there. In that letter, he defended his actions, and eventually the matter was dropped. However, things flared up a few months later, when Masakado began sheltering several men wanted in neighboring provinces in his own territory, including, funnily enough, the provincial governor who thought Masakado wanted to kill him. Masakado claimed these men as being under his protection, and demanded the charges against them be dropped. When his demand was refused, he invaded the neighboring province of Hitachi, the governor of which had issued the warrants. He crushed them thoroughly during the 11th month of 939. It seems like Masakado had simply intended to punish his neighbors for refusing his demands. However, when he won an easy and thorough victory, much more quickly than he had expected to, he decided to step in and just take control of the province, rather than going in and just breaking some stuff and calling it a day. His victory seems to have given him a bad case of hubris. Having expanded his domains with relative ease, Masakado then began eyeing even greater heights. He declared himself the new emperor, or Shinno, and revolted openly against the central government. Even worse for the group currently in power in Kyoto, at the same time all of this was going down, another revolt was breaking out around the Inland Sea, near Shikoku, led by a distant Fujiwara relative named Fujiwara no Sumitomo. Although later period literature describes the two rebels as being in cahoots, it appears to simply have been lucky happenstance. It's unclear what exactly pushed Masakado into open rebellion, but again, likely hubris played some part in it. He'd already more or less made himself an outlaw by invading Hitachi, and since he'd already crossed that particular Rubicon, why not go for gold? He continued expanding and grabbed the provinces of Shimotsuke and Kosuke during the 12th month of 939. However, the central government was not going to just go down without fighting. They organized an army under a Fujiwara relative named Fujiwara no Hidesato, and bribed Masakado's fence-sitting cousin, Taira no Sadamori, with court titles and influence to join their side instead of his. The central government army was dispatched to the east in 940, and in the first month of that year they fought Masakado at the Battle of Kawaguchi. Masakado was decisively beaten, a fact that the Shomonki, the chronicle of his life, refers to as punishment from heaven for his hubris. The final three months of Masakado's life were spent trying to maneuver away from the pursuing forces of the central government. In the fourth month, he was pinned down at a place called Kitayama and died in battle trying to escape. Masakado's head was removed from his body and brought back to Kyoto to be paraded about on a spear. Now, for about a thousand years after the fact, there were two versions of the story of Taira no Masakado. For the people of his home region of Kanto, Masakado became something of a folk hero. The central government tended not to be very popular in these sort of border regions, where the people paid taxes but saw little benefit from their so-called leaders. For these people, Masakado was a yonaoshi, a fixer of the world a tragic figure who had died fighting for what was right against a corrupt government. He became, in a sense, a sort of Japanese Robin Hood who stood up for the little guy, 
with the obvious difference that Robin of Loxley never lost his head. Indeed, he was so popular that a few hundred years after his death, he was enshrined in one of Tokyo's oldest and most influential Shinto shrines, Kanda Shrine, a spot he shares with two deities of fortune, Ebisu and Daikoku. However, for the imperial court, Taira no Masakado was the worst kind of traitor. Not even the hated Ashikaga Takauji had tried to make himself emperor. Rebelling against the court rather than those serving the court was a crime beyond imagining. In fact, in 1874, the Meiji Emperor, after moving to Tokyo, actually demanded that Masakado be de-enshrined from Kanda Shrine before he would visit that shrine, because he refused to worship at a shrine which housed a revered traitor. If you're wondering, Masakado was eventually re-enshrined in 1984. He, alongside the other kami of Kanda Shrine, is celebrated every other year at the Kanda Festival in Tokyo. So, you may be wondering, what was the point of all this? Masakado's Rebellion is a great little tale of glory and hubris, but it's not really a ghost story. It's not really appropriate for Halloween, is it? But, listener, the story of Masakado does not end with his death. You see, the head, taken to Kyoto, according to some, began to wail and gnash its teeth after being paraded around, In some stories, it actually jumped off the spear and flew east in search of its body. It was then shot down by a monk from Atsuta Shrine, or, depending on which version of the story you hear, it just got tired. Either way, it landed in what is now the Otemachi area of Tokyo. The area where it landed became known as Kubizuka, the head mound, and a large shrine to the head stood on that ground until it burned down in the 1923 Great Kanto Earthquake. Taira no Masakado's daughter, Takiyashihime, also got in on the supernatural action as well. According to some stories, she was a sorceress of considerable power. For example, after Taira no Masakado's death, the imperial court sent an inspector named Oya no Mitsukuni to hunt down any remaining conspirators. When he came after Takiyashihime, she supposedly summoned a giant skeleton to frighten him away. There's even a kabuki play showing this story, where a heroic Mitsukuni refuses to be scared away by the terrifying specters summoned by Takiyasha. Taira no Masakado's legend retained a great deal of potency across the ages. Tokugawa Ieyasu, for example, was reportedly so uncomfortable with the fact that such a powerful spirit was enshrined so close to his castle that he stepped up his patronage for other religious establishments in Tokyo, most notably Hiei Shrine, as well as Zojoji Temple and Kaneiji Temple, as a form of spiritual bet-hedging, so to speak, against Masakado's vengeful spirit. I can't find any academic sources to verify that, by the way, but it certainly sounds like Tokugawa Ieyasu. He was always one to hedge his bets when he could. You see, the sprawling Ministry of Finance had had offices next to Kubizuka for several decades, And after the Great Kanto Fire, they figured, well, this shrine's too damaged to fix, we'll just take it over and build a new building on top of it. The new building was completed in 1926. What followed was a series of mysterious disasters. Fourteen Ministry of Finance officials, including the Minister of Finance himself, Seiji Hayami, died under mysterious circumstances. Several more were taken seriously ill or injured. And thus did the Ministry of Finance, 
decide that it could not take on a 1,000-year-old spirit. In 1928, after two years trying to keep the new building up and running, the Ministry of Finance closed it down, rebuilt the original shrine, and hired a Shinto priest to come in every year and perform a ritual to appease Masakado. Apparently it took, but Masakado decided to emphasize the point. In 1940, 1,000 years exactly since his death, the Ministry of Finance building was struck by a lightning bolt in a storm, and the expansion which covered the former grounds of Kubizuka Shrine was burned to the ground. The Ministry of Finance, at this point presumably deciding that it was not worth trying to keep up with this kind of neighbor, closed down its offices next to the shrine and just moved somewhere else. After the war, Masakado's spirit continued to strike. The American government decided to pave over the shrine to make room for a motor pool. But the bulldozer sent to the shrine flipped over, killing the driver. After a few more mysterious accidents, either divine retribution or locals covertly sabotaging the project to protect a local landmark, the Americans eventually backed off. Masakado's legacy continued after the war, the plot of land next to Kubizuka was eventually sold to the titanic Mitsui firm, one of Japan's oldest businesses. When Mitsui attempted to encroach on the grounds of the shrine by expanding into the Kubizuka lot, it too encountered a series of mysterious financial reversals. Eventually, Mitsui cleared out of the Kubizuka lot, and according to some sources, though this is not verified by Mitsui, employees were ordered to arrange their desks so as to avoid presenting their backs to Kubizuka and further irritating Masakado's spirit. The struggle between the modern multinational corporation and the 1,000-year-old spirit continues to this day. For example, when Mitsui Finance Corporation was forced to declare bankruptcy in 2002, it was generally blamed on that company's plans to sell the mineral rights to the area below the shrine. Masakado's vengeance even extends onto the silver screen. In 1987, NHK began filming a televised version of Teitou Monogatari, or The Legend of the Capital, a sprawling work of what might best be termed historical fantasy that covers most of Japanese history. The plot revolves around a villain who attempts to destroy Tokyo by awakening the vengeful spirit of Masakado. Apparently, during the filming of the show, NHK ran into a series of freak accidents, injuries, delays, that sort of thing, which eventually convinced them to hire a priest and perform a ritual to appease Masakado before they would continue filming. This became standard practice. Nowadays, if you want to make something that involves Masakado for TV, first you, the producers, the actors, everybody, has to swing by Kubizuka hire a priest, and make sure he's cool with it. Not that I'd imagine he minds too much, it was actually another NHK drama filmed a few years earlier, with him as the hero rather than the villain, that helped build up local pressure to have him re-enshrined at Kanda Shrine. So that's the legacy of Tyrano Masakado, the failed rebel whose spirit haunts Tokyo to this day. If you find yourself in Otemachi with time to spare, take a look at Kubizuka Shrine for yourself. Just remember to show respect on the grounds of the shrine, or else. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to listeners Noel Grimes, Arthur Mendez, Jillian Snowden, and David Enyart for donating to support the show.
To join them, or to find more information on this episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for more ghost stories as we delve into the first English-language collection of Japanese legends, Kwaidan.